Welcome to Double Deal, a series about organized crime in 20th century Boston. The stories of our central character, Richard Tchaikovsky. The criminals, the crimes, and the law enforcement officers who ruled the streets. Nina and I will be your guides through the darkest streets of Boston, telling you the true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies. Welcome back, everyone. The 1960s were wild times in Boston. With a gang war playing out in the background, there must have been a bit of a Wild West feel in the air between the amazing bank and armored car heist pulled off by Jack Kelly and his crew and the equally amazing clusterfucks that others attempted to pull off. When Nina and I were doing research for our book, we realized that many of the men who were on an FBI suspect list from 1968 were also on the FBI's list of Gardner Museum heist suspects. Well, you're the one who gave Richie that list back in 1995 when Mary Farrell released it. Okay, it was me. Sorry. (laughs) The first names that caught our eyes were, of course, Laura's dad and Carmelo Morlino, then Bobby Garenti. More recently, James Marks, who is now deceased, and Richard Magna have been named in connection with the Gardner. And let's not forget Bobby Donati, but we won't be covering his escapades today since he was in the can in 1968 for his very own botched heist at from 1965. We have to throw Hobart Willis into the mix. I've never seen Hobart's name in connection with the Gardner, but I have seen references to dad and Hobart being the same person. The Boston Herald used to run a have you seen me piece around the anniversary of the Gardner heist. How could anyone be looking for Richie? (laughs) I know it sounds ridiculous since it wasn't as if he could blend into the background and he certainly wasn't hiding out, but the Hobart theory gave dad and me a good laugh. Well, I bet. As for 1968, it was a busy year for the local thieves. There was one day that saw six heists. Granted, the six were in the New England area and not just the immediate Boston area, but still an insane number. We'll cover the thefts in chronological order and give more details about our Gardner suspects along the way, as well as some of the other perpetrators. Well, let's jump right in with the first robbery of the year. On January 23rd, the Milton Bank and Trust Company was hit in Quincy. The trio was pinched less than a mile from the bank, but the cops had to release them the following day. On that same day, two masked men, one armed with a pistol, robbed the Newton South Cooperative Bank in Newton Highlands. Three employees were held at gunpoint while the other thief cleaned out the teller drawer for a total of $2,000. The getaway car, which had been stolen from the home of a Newton attorney the evening before, was found abandoned less than a mile away from the bank. The South Medford Savings Bank that had recently opened on January 29th was the site of back-to-back robberies. On the evening of February 19th, a local restaurant manager was making the night deposit containing the weekend's proceeds of some $20,000. A lone gunman struck him on the head and fled. The following morning, just before 11, another lone gunman appeared at the branch and made off with $5,000. It would be another month before there was a headline to top that one. On March 21st, a gunman entered the First National Bank at Brigham Circle. But when he approached the teller, tucked safely behind the bulletproof glass, the teller smiled and pressed the alarm. The would-be thief ran out and commandeered a taxi cab. Just 20 minutes later, a man wearing a taxi driver's cap, fitting the same description as the unsuccessful robber, walked into the Putterham branch of the Brookline Savings Bank, this time making off with $4,600. Not long after, the Brookline Savings Bank on Washington Street in Brookline Village was robbed of $3,500. He, too, was seen fleeing in a taxi that was later found abandoned not far away on the Jamaica Way. Well, that had to be the same guy. Oh, I agree. I mean, what are the odds that three different guys decide to carjack taxis and rob three banks in a couple-mile radius of each other? 
Well, even taking into account that it was Boston, I'd still say slim. Anyhow, while that commotion was going on, two masked men robbed the Rockland Trust and Hanson masks of $6,000. Three masked men in Stanford, Connecticut, hit the State National Bank for $32,500. And last but not least, the Casco Bank in good old Portland, Maine, was hit by a loan bandit for $4,620. A very busy day. The following month, on April 23rd, the feds and the BPD arrested David W. Donovan of Dorchester. That's too many D's. On suspicion of the attempted robbery at First National Bank, but that wasn't the only reason they wanted him. There was a federal warrant out for Donovan for unlawful flight to avoid prosecution in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Donovan was suspected of murdering a 24-year-old woman who was found naked and strangled in his hotel room in San Juan and held without bail. Donovan was indicted the following month for the failed robbery. In August, he pleaded guilty to the Roxbury attempted heist and the two Brookline robberies. I couldn't find what happened with the murder charge. I came up empty-handed also. The next robbery was on April Fool's Day. I still don't understand why anyone thinks pulling an armed robbery on April Fool's Day is a good idea. (laughs) I know, but even Superstitious Jack made that mistake. At around 11 a.m., six masks men armed with army-issue carbines entered the Sunbeam Baking Company garage in Dorchester. They overpowered two armed guards and five employees. A Skelly armored truck had pulled into the garage roughly five minutes before the robbery. They made off with somewhere between eight and $10,000, but the haul should have been over $40,000. The pickup that was scheduled prior to the Sunbeam had been rescheduled until later in the day at the last minute, obviously unbeknownst to the thieves. A week later, Gerard Persuti and Paul Auerbach were arrested and held on $100,000. Both managed to make bail, and a hearing was scheduled for May. Oh my God, Paul Auerbach, a.k.a. Sawbuck. I forgot all about him. Dad used to take me to visit him when I was little. Often on the same days we went to visit Roy Appleton. Sometimes Paul would be at Roy's house, too. His wife was a secretary to old man Bilotti. Why did they call him Sawbuck, though? I assume because it rhymed with Arbuck, and since it was slang for a $10 bill, it seems appropriate for a bank robber. Well, what were some of the other amounts in those days called? Well, we all know a buck is a dollar. That's probably the only one that doesn't seem too archaic these days. Finna for a $5 bill, double sawbuck for a 20 A two-bitter, I think, was 25 a half a yard for 50 and, of course, the classic C-note for 100 and a G-note or a grand for 1000 And our little Eastern European circle had a smattering of their own lingo, capusta and babka for money, which translates to cabbage and cake or old lady. A common phrase about money in your pocket back in those days was scratch in your kick. But in my house, it was pada in your kick. Pada are basically like pierogies. When I think about how I talk, sometimes I realize I sound like an old hoodlum from the 50s or 60s. Yeah, and you got me sounding like that too sometimes, <laughs> but I don't mind too much. Back to Sunbeam. Later that month, two brothers from Quincy named James and Wayne Smith were arrested also. On May 13th, 29-year-old Gerard Persuti was found shot twice in the head, lying in the driveway of a Quincy home. Persuti wasn't just free on bail for the Sunbeam heist, but also for a Braintree housebreak and the robbery of a Cranston, Rhode Island jeweler and his wife at their home in January earlier that year. Paul Auerbach and Robert Wilkinson were also arrested for that theft. Another instance of where he would have been better off staying in jail, Persuti was actually shot outside the home of the Smith brothers. Their mother told Persuti that they weren't home. As she was settling back in her living room, she heard the shots ring out. The authorities said that they had, he had been on a hit list 
for over a year because he talked too much. They determined that after the first bullet hit him, the killer then stood over him and fired one more shot to ensure the job was complete. But he was still alive when the ambulance arrived. He never named his killer and died while being transported to the hospital. His co-defendants were all brought in for questioning, but no one was ever charged in pursuit of his murder. Now, what happened to the charges against them for the robbery is another story. I couldn't find anything. I have to assume the case was thrown out or they were acquitted. As I said earlier, Paul was around when I was little. Paul will be back in season two. Let's bounce back to April. On April 2nd, the Coolidge Corner Cooperative Bank in Brookline was robbed for the third time in five years. The nonchalant thief was described as five foot ten, stocky, dark-skinned, and wavy hair, and made off with a brown paper bag filled with $5,100. No one was able to say whether he fled on foot or had a vehicle waiting for him, and no one was ever arrested. Well, they say three times is the charm, but that was not the case for the three men who decided to pull off the third robbery in three days. On April 3rd, Francis Garney, James McGrath, and Richard Martell robbed the stop and shop on Truman Highway in Hyde Park of $15,000 in cash and checks. A witness reported seeing the men enter the home of a neighborhood woman and called the police. The three men were also considered suspects in the Sunbeam heist at the time of their arrest. Garney and Martell made bail, but McGrath was stuck in Charles Street. It appears Martell went straight, but his partners in crime had other plans. On August 19th, McGrath and another inmate named Harold Waterman made an escape attempt. They didn't even make it out of the yard. Both faced additional charges. Garney's freedom came to an end in October after four detectives crashed through the doors of a rented garrison colonial home in Winchester, Mass. Inside were Garney, Frederick Dunker, and William Shea, accompanied by two women, one of whom was pregnant. The pregnant one had five other kids who were living with other family members. The cops seized a small arsenal of weapons. They were wanted for three grocery store robberies, including the Stop and Shop one on April 3rd. I'd swear that stop and shop is the same one Mel and Merlino robbed in the 50s. Anyhow, here's so much I could say, but I bet that the crew had a late night christening parties and baby showers too. What? No shortage of booze and balls. <laughs> oh, no shortage of snarkiness today. All right, enough of the snarkiness. Back to the robberies. On April 8th, the State Street Bank and Trust was robbed by three armed men who made off with $31,823, but not for long. Albert McNamara, the owner of McNamara Concrete, spotted the three gunmen and tailed them. He had a two-way radio from his office that he used to relay the vehicle info to the Boston police. Four patrolmen apprehended them and charged them with armed robbery. Christopher Shine, Daniel McLeod, and William Randall were held on $100,000 bail each. Shine had been arrested on charges of possession of drug paraphernalia, including hypodermic needles, in January of that year and was sentenced to a year in jail in February, but was somehow free by April. McLeod and Randall appeared to have no record, another one of those instances where the case just seemed to disappear. The following month on May 14th, Ralph DeLeo robbed the Coolidge Bank and Trust in Cambridge for $35,000. Like more than a few of the other guys, DeLeo was out on bail at the time of the robbery. Out on bail three times over for a total of $107,000, a Cape Cod bank holdup, a stick-up at a Bradley's in Dorchester back in April, and a grocery store robbery in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And What the fuck was everyone doing down in San Juan? Anyhow, they set bail a fourth time. And it was only $5,000. <laughs> Needless to say, DeLeo remained on the street and found himself behind bars for another bank robbery in January the following year. 
I suspect we'll be revisiting Ralph's adventures again. The next robbery was in Natick, Mass. on July 8th. John Colin Martins of Newton, Stanley Pachalski of Florida, and Angela Schiassa of New Jersey were arrested. They were each held on $6,000 bail, and the authorities in Louisville, Kentucky, also had warrants for their arrest there for armed robbery, but another one of those cases that just seemed to disappear. July 16th was another one of those busy days with three robberies. The first one was in Medford at the Tufts University branch of the Middlesex County National Bank when three armed men robbed the tellers of roughly $4,500. Just a few minutes later, a lone gunman hit the North Avenue Savings Bank in Cambridge. He made off with nearly $2,500. And to wrap up the day, two gunmen stole $2,500 from the Suffolk Franklin Bank located at 139 Mass Ave in Boston. No arrests were made at that time, but 10 days later, 19-year-old Charles Fuller was arrested for the Tufts job. He was indicted on August 12th. In November, he was sentenced to 7 to 10 years in Walpole, but no one was ever arrested for the other two robberies. The following week on July 22nd, there was another triple header. The first robbery of the day was the First National Bank of Boston at the Northgate Shopping Center in Revere. Five men, all armed, muscled past a half dozen customers at around 9.30 in the morning. They fled with $60,000 in a stolen white Oldsmobile. The second robbery was the Grove Hall Savings Bank in Dorchester that was robbed at 11 a.m. by a lone gunman who escaped with an undetermined amount of cash. And the final stick-up took place at 12.30 p.m., by a bearded, heavy-set armed robber who hit the Warren Cooperative Bank on Washington Street near the Dudley Terminal for $1,186. Who were these lone gunmen? That's what I want to know. Well, there were lots of them. There was no shortage, that's for sure. Only the first National Bank thieves were arrested, but not until the beginning of 1969, so let's move on to the next robbery. On July 23rd, the Security National Bank in Lynn was robbed by two armed men who then fled in two separate getaway cars. Their total haul was $138,000. That sounds an awful lot like a jack job, but I don't remember Dad talking about that heist. Well, it had to have been Jack and his crew. We should have those recordings of Dad at the beginning of next week, so maybe we'll have an answer there. Oh, that'll be great. The following day, on July 24th, the Milton Bank and Trust in Braintree Five Corners was robbed of $1,000 by two armed men. Not to break the streak, the following day, two sunglasses-clad men entered the Arlington National Bank in Lexington and made off with $8,000. And while that was happening, three masked men held up the American Finance Company in Salem, but they didn't make it too far. Stephen Dalton, Donald Williams, and Raymond Mashad were all arrested while making their getaway. And the streak came to an end for July, but by August 1st, another crew was in action. The Roslindale Cooperative Bank in Roslindale Square was robbed by three loudly dressed young men carrying stub-nosed revolvers for a total of $15,078. The leader of the three, who was called Harry, was sporting green trousers and a purple sports jacket. Another wore a blonde wig and all-dawn sunglasses. The following month, on September 27th, the green and purple ensembled man was arrested. Richard Magna was held on a $100,000 bail. He had been released from the Billerica House of Corrections earlier that summer, but he was already out on bail for robbing the Arlington Heights branch of the Arlington Five Cent Savings Bank on August 23rd. So Roslindale was actually his fourth bail. We need to back up a little to the morning of July 8th when Magna and James Marks were arrested after being tracked down by German shepherds at the old Leechmere warehouse in Cambridge after attempting to steal a truck loaded with $20,000 worth of merchandise. They were freed on $2,500 bail when they pulled off the Roslindale heist. 
Before we move on with Marx and Megna's adventures and the other heists of 68, tell us a little bit about them. James Francis Marx was born on July 20th, 1940 to James and Julia Marx in Lynn, Mass. The first time his name appeared in the newspapers was in December of 58 when he was involved in a freak auto crash. By the 1960s, he was living in Southie and getting into trouble. In January of 65, he and James Coffey were arrested on illegal weapons possession and motor vehicle violation charges. James's name might be familiar to some of you because he was recently named as a person of interest in the Gardner Museum heist. He was killed on February 20th, 1991. And James's old partner in crime, Richard Magna, who also happens to be a cousin of the late Lenny DiMuzio, a Gardner heist suspect himself. Megna was also a cousin of Frank Strizula, who was an associate of Sal Cesario. Megna's family was from Palermo, Sicily, and he was rumored to be an associate of both the Colombo family and the Bonanno family. Richard has been in Florida for decades running nightclubs. Now I'm a little uneasy about dragging Megna's name into the Gardner mess just because of his past association with suspects. Yes, he had an old record for theft, but because he was related to or knew a handful of suspects doesn't make him a suspect. If that was the qualifier, then I'm in trouble too, I guess. I agree. So let's stick to what Magna was up to in 68. As I said a little while ago, Magna was free on four bails at one time. The other was from a robbery that occurred on September 13th in Vilreca. And why is there a silent E in Vilreca? It's so confusing. Vilreca. I can't. And you change the pronunciation every time you say well, it. Sometimes it could be Billerica. Some people say it Billerica, but it's just Billerica. I can't. Magna, Marks, and Coughlin hit the Union National Bank for $28,500. Their escape wasn't a smooth one. The white station wagon they used as their getaway car was found crashed into a tree on the Vilreca Bedford line with $3,000 of the loot and a twenty-two pistol in the vehicle. After the crash, they took off on foot. Magna and Coughlin were finally captured after an eight-hour manhunt that included dogs, a Coast Guard helicopter, and a private plane. (laughs) (laughs) They led the police to the money they'd stashed in the woods off the Middlesex Turnpike. Marx was in the hospital because he'd been shot in the left leg by a homeowner as he ran through their backyard trying to escape the police. He was arraigned while laying on a stretcher. Okay, snarky comment alert. Why is it that the suspect in these major cases are always a bunch of losers who are constantly taking pinches? Wouldn't it make sense that the guys were capable of successfully pulling off a major heist for the guys who weren't going to the can every other crime they committed it? Isn't it just easier to pull from the usual suspect list? I mean, is that where we're at here? It's that Mary Farrell list. I'm telling you, they're running off of it. <laughs> And have you looked at the picture of Magda from the Vilreca arrest? Mastermind is not the first thing I think of when I look at that photo. These guys all look like they're straight out of central casting. I know, and I had to use that one for our cover art today. I'm glad, though, that Magna moved into the strip club business and left the armed robbery stuff in the past. All right, let's jump back to August. On the 22nd, two bank heists took place, one in Medford and one in Brighton for a total haul of about $24,000. Two armed men, one wearing a steel helmet, walked into the Commonwealth National Bank and took about $20,000 before fleeing on foot and a motorcycle. Three men hit the community cooperative bank and made off with at least $4,000. No one was ever arrested for either of these two robberies. On August 30th, two gunmen entered the Charlestown Savings Bank in Roxbury near Brigham Circle and made off with $7,000. Later that afternoon, six robbers hit the workmen's cooperative bank in Mattapan and stole $1,700. Like in the previous robberies, no arrests were made. 
But on September 20th, another one of our gardener suspects managed to get himself locked up after a botched robbery and baby hostage situation. Uh, another criminal mastermind that looked like he came out of central casting, Bobby Garenti. Oh, there's a picture of him being booked that gives the Magna Pick a run for its money. I'll spare our listeners another dose of snarkiness and jump right into the heist. On Friday, September 20th, Garenti, Thomas Perry of Erie, Pennsylvania, and John Mickelson robbed the First National Bank located in a shopping plaza in Natick at the intersection of Route 9 westbound and Route 27. They made off with $12,000, but things didn't go as planned, and the cops were in pursuit from the beginning of their attempt to flee. While Mickelson managed to escape, Garenti and Perry threatened mothers and small children. Garenti held one woman and her little boy hostage for 45 minutes before the cops captured him. The following day, Mickelson was arrested and the trio appeared in court and were held on $40,000 bail. One week later, the district court judge in Natick found probable cause against all three men. Garenti and Perry were held without bail at Bill Ricca, but Mickelson was freed on $40,000 bail. Perry was also wanted in Pennsylvania and had been under surveillance for at least 10 days prior to his arrest in Natick. He was believed to be part of a crime ring that wasn't just focused on theft, but also plotted to kill a prosecutor in Michigan. But Perry and the others were freed on bail. Prosecutors didn't waste any time and hearings began on September 28th. Some 20 witnesses were sworn in on the first day. The first witness pointed out Garenti as the man who tried to force him to open the vault, but a trial date was never set for the local case. The boys may have thought they were going to coast, but in a few months they'd learn otherwise. In the meantime, the robberies continued. On Friday, October 11th, the First Federal Savings Bank and Loan, Savings and Loan Bank on Summer Street was hit. An unsuspecting Boston police officer walked into the bank while the thieves were in the middle of their heist. 52-year-old traffic officer Paul Curley was shot in the head. Miraculously, the husband and father of four survived. When he was conscious, he told his fellow officers that he had no idea that a robbery was in progress when he entered the bank. Former FBI Special Agent Edmund McNamara, who was now chief of the BPD, called upon his fellow officers to donate blood since Curley faced several surgeries in order to remove the bullet lodged in his head. The thieves netted $1,700, and it wouldn't be until December that a federal grand jury was convened. Just five days later, three men attempted to rob the First County National Bank in Brockton, but their plans were foiled by an off-duty police officer. Gustavus Carmichael, Roger Brown, and William Royce were arrested without incident and held on $100,000 bond. As they were being transported to the Plymouth House of Correction, they overpowered the guards and kidnapped one of them. The guard was dropped off in the north end of Boston unharmed later that evening. On October 24th, Royce was pinched at a Saugus Motel with $2,000 in cash and a pistol in his possession, another one of those great photos that could have easily been part of the movie. Brown and Carmichael avoided being apprehended until December. They were picked up in a Reno, Nevada motel. All three were facing charges for multiple robberies, including one that ended with a fatality. To finish off the year, two holdups took place on December 20th. The employee credit union of the Boston Gas Company was robbed of $50,000 and the Commonwealth National Bank on Broad Street in downtown Boston was hit for an undisclosed amount. And with that robbery, 1968 came to an end, but the story was hardly over. In late January of 69, an investigator at DA Garrett Burns' office made contact with Mickelson, who was still locked up awaiting trial. Mickelson agreed to turn informer in exchange for time shaved off of his sentence. Another member of the gang backed up Mickelson's version of events, and the feds now had a case thanks mostly to the work of the DA's office. 
This reminds me of the Harvey Bastani story. The feds couldn't make their case and had to get Bastani and Yacobanis to make their case for them. Exactly. And just three weeks later, the federal indictments came down and warrants were issued against 11 men. Chris Calabresi, Anthony Ciotti, James Kearns, Hobart Willis, Joseph Kernane, Paul Durant, Joseph Marino, Cesare Montevecchio, Bobby Garenti, John Mickelson, and Daniel Pagliarulo. Hobart, along with Calabresi, Montevecchio, Garenti, and Mickelson were charged with the July 2nd Coolidge Bank and Trust Heist. Marino was charged with the Milton Bank and Trust from July 23rd. Marino, Pagliarulo, and Garenti were charged with the first heist of the year that took place on January 23rd in Quincy. In July, four of the men pleaded guilty. Let's start with Hobart Willis. He copped to the Coolidge Bank Trust. His sentencing was scheduled for later that fall. In October, a man named Donald McKenzie was indicted for trying to poison Mickelson in Suffolk County Jail. Burns' office alleged that McKenzie had offered the cooks $10,000 to put lye in Mickelson's food. Two days later, five of the bank robbers pleaded guilty in front of Judge Charles Wazanski. Hobart was given a 20-year sentence. Montevecchio and Calabresi were each sentenced to 15 years for participating in the same job. Joseph Marino and Bobby Garenti also got 20 years each for their roles in a November 1967 job that got them $2,000. Imagine getting 20 years for for 2,000 lousy dollars. Obviously, Wazanski was less than sympathetic to these guys. Their sentences are set to run concurrently with the other prior sentences they'd been given for the other jobs. Hobart would move on to narcotics upon his release from prison. There will be more to come about him in season two. We have to get this last story in about Richard Magna. In July 1970, the cops found Richie Magna in New Hampshire Hampshire at a Hampton Beach hotel. The cops apparently thought they had to jump into the lake to capture him, so they changed into swim trunks before carrying out their search. Magna had failed to appear in court the previous month. He had been facing charges of armed robbery, larceny, conspiracy, breaking and entering, and receiving stolen goods. When he failed to appear in court, his lawyer took the guilty verdict for the Bill Ricca job. Magna was sentenced to 9 to 15 years at Walpole 10 days after he was captured. There'll be more to come about Richie Magna in the next season. Can you imagine the cop? It's like something straight out of a movie. <laughs> How great. do they have swim trunks with them? I mean, just like something you they carry would, in, your, in your cruiser. I don't know. <laughs> running down the beach in their <laughs> swim trunks looking for Richie Magna yeah. with his tattoos. <laughs> oh, God, his heart. He had that heart tattoo on his arm. It was like so classic 50s. Oh, man, it's great. And more to come about Garenti. Next week, we're heading back to Providence, Rhode Island. Well, it's about time. I know you miss me quoting Raymondisms, so I'm going to have to find a few for next week. We'll be discussing the William Fayo murder, the Angela De Palma murder, and the death of Frank Millay Jr. And don't forget that we'll be digging deeper into Max and Sarah and Louis Minacchio and their relationship. And of course, what Raymond Patriaca was up to. Thank you all for listening, guys. Bye. Bye. Double Deal, true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies.